Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we just watch? Double Indemnity, a 1944 psychological film, uh, psychological thriller and film noir by Billy Wilder. This uh, one was so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, based on a novel by James M. Kane, and the screenplay was done by uh, Billy Wilder in collaboration with Raymond Chandler. And Raymond Chandler, Billy Wilder, James M. Kane, these are some great storytellers. Kane, what a name. Also spelled correctly. Love to see it. Nice Irish boy. <laughs> You're so vain. <laughs> Kane squad roll up. <laughs> so wow. What was the uh, central uh, 
quickie uh, mystery element so of this. it's not uh it's not as much a who done it or a why done it as much as a they did it and will they get away with it um it follows a uh a gullible insurance salesman who uh hooks up with a you know beautiful housewife and they decide to get rid of their uh the the housewife's uh wealthy husband and they're going to fix it up so not only are they going to get away with murder but they're going to get away with a ton of money um due to uh the aforementioned husband's uh you know going to fix him up with an insurance policy that allows him to have that them to get a double indemnity if he dies in a certain way so they'll get a double payout uh, structurally, it's a bit like an episode of Columbo, mm-hmm. where we see a very clever murder planned, and then we get to see it uh, unravel. There's even kind of an eccentric uh, guy who uh, helps unravel a bit. Yeah. Should we go into it in depth? So it gets off to a bit of a limping start. Well, you're cracking wise. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. And uh, we... we op- what do you mean by that? Well, uh, we see uh, in the opening credits a man on crutches sort of hobbling across the screen. So that's giving us some uh, some hint about what's going to happen. And it's it's, in, it's intriguing for sure. But then we uh, open up with seemingly a guy going into an office building. Doesn't seem that crazy. The office, though, is uh, empty. I mean, I've been to work really early, so I mean, I, I definitely relate to this. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an ominous feeling, though. I think the only person in the office was an elevator man who very helpfully uh, provides some uh, exposition, revealing that this is an insurance uh, office. And I should say, when I say he provides exposition, it's done in a very natural way. It doesn't feel awkward. Yeah, it's not an exposition dump. There's lots of times where this movie naturally works in, uh, you know, exposition in a very seamless way that doesn't feel uh, like you're having to stop the plot in order to get everything straight. At this point, I think you indicated you thought it was a little slow. You know, he's kind of taken a long time to sit down and get sorted. And, like, I feel like that in the morning, you know, before I have tea or coffee. So I understood that. But, you know, I, I also know I have the attention span of a goldfish, basically, <laughs> thanks to years of bad <laughs> TV <laughs> and YouTube videos. So I'm not going to I'm not going to mark that against the film. But, yeah, for, you know, it's like you're kind of like, OK, what's going on here? He's leaving this kind of ominous message at work where are we going but it pretty it mean once it picks up in a you know a few minutes after that basically it basically it doesn't let go it's so basically the slow start is like what the first two minutes yeah of the, the first two seconds yeah <laughs> i told you i my brain is broken <laughs> I need I need people doing I need people doing flashing lights and tap dances right in front of my face constantly for me to pay attention. It's I have problems. <laughs> so what happens to make it uh, pick up? Well, um, he basically confesses to murder. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. So uh, with a pretty uh, uh, cracking line, don't you think, Kevin? What was that line? I killed him for money and a woman. I didn't get the money. Or the woman. Ah, oh, beautiful. <laughs> Noir. <laughs> and he's he's sitting in the office addressing this confession to a man named Keys, who we have not yet met. Mm-hmm. And, and we're we going to meet him. Oh, we're going to meet him. And we're, we're going to love him. <laughs> so how... Oh, and, and I, I'd like to mention at this point that the man who is giving this confession in uh, the empty office, 
he appears to be bleeding in the shoulder. And I would say that he's played by Fred McMurray, who uh, people older than yourself probably fondly remember from a television sitcom called My Three Sons. <laughs> that doesn't sound real, but okay. <laughs> Wasn't a good sitcom, but uh, he was on it for like 20-some years, I believe. Wow, good for him. And then he was also in a bunch of really family-friendly Disney movies. Uh, was he the Shaggy DA? Was that somebody oh, else? Oh, yeah. I knew he looked familiar from something. So typically, he's a very family-friendly actor, is what I'm saying. And he's perfect for this role, because you don't feel like he's the kind of guy who like would get mixed up in something like this. But then again, that's the kind of guy you got to watch out for. Yeah, those are the ones with the secrets. Yeah, the nice guys. Where are they hiding? Don't trust them. Yeah, you gotta you got to give them the snake eye. That's why I go for the bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> Like you, Kevin. <laughs> I'm sitting here in my leather jacket. Yeah, smoking. <laughs> Your motorcycle gang friends <laughs> honking outside. <laughs> Tell me to get a move on. <laughs> Tell me I'm spending too much time with my old lady in my skirt. Oh, no. <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Um, no, yeah, it's, 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 ugh, this movie. This movie is so good. And, and this framing device, uh, you know, uh, keeps perpetuating throughout the film. Uh, you keep going back to this confession that he's leaving for his uh, co-worker keys. Very effective. I didn't think it slowed things down. It sort of sped things up and kind of kept everything on track in a way that I found appealing. In fact, nothing slowed this movie down. I don't think there was a wasted frame. This movie is lean and muscular. There's not an ounce of fat on it. This is the, I mean, it's, nothing is wasted. So, stuff you kind of like, oh, you know, what's, what's, and then boom, it comes back and it's super relevant. It's just a boomerang. Everything is a boomerang. It just keeps hitting you in the face, coming back. Just, ugh. But in a good way. <laughs> in a, no, in a good way. Yeah. In a very good way. So how does uh, his story begin, his confession? Um, well, so he's driving around. He's trying to, you know, get up his sales numbers, right, as insurance salesmen are wont to do. And uh, then he uh, finds himself in a certain area in California, you know, where he operates, and he wants to go check if uh, some policyholder will be up for renewing his policy. This particular policyholder lives in a swanky, fancy $30,000 house. $30,000, folks. $30,000. I'm that made me so mad. People people nowadays who are like ranting about millennials, oh you guys, you know, you're not settling down, you're not doing this and that, like you you paid like a, a penny and a nickel and like a toothpick for housing back then. I mean, it's just it's just so unfair. And this is a nice house. This is a beautiful home. This is a wealthy man's home. It's thirty thousand dollars. Just every ugh, this country. But anyway, let's go back to the film. <laughs> <laughs> that was one marker of its time. But it was you know. Ugh. So he goes to this house. A maid or something admits him to the inside. He wants to see the man of the house. The man of the house isn't there. But the woman of the house is there. Oh, she's very much there in a towel. In a towel. And she says, is there anything I can do? It's such a sexy scene. And she's standing up on a on a banister or something. Yeah, she's high above him, sort of has the high ground. The, she has the powerful role in this relationship. It's a great introduction. He's always like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, yeah, damn. It's a, it's a great it's a great opener, and you, you know this guy's in trouble from <laughs> this moment on because it's noir. People are not going to make good choices from here on out. 
And the dialogue starts getting off full of puns about insurance and stuff. She's barely covered in this towel. And, and he says, oh, I'm, I'm worried you need more coverage. Talking about insurance, not about her uh, garments. It comes across as much more sizzling than Kevin's making it out to me. <laughs> One little quip about the scene. He talks about how in their living room, there's like a bowl of goldfish. Did you catch that? Yeah. Is that a thing that people back in the day did? Like, yeah, I'll just leave some stale goldfish out for random salesmen who come into my house. Were they... <laughs> like those crackers? Or were, were, they, were they literally fish? I thought he was talking about like, almost like help yourself to some. Never mind. I might be wrong. <laughs> I'm such a bad listener. <laughs> I got the impression that they were literally fish. But I could be wrong. <laughs> That was the you, first thing that they were cat people. <laughs> so, so, so you're saying it was actually just a bowl of, of goldfish crackers? I thought somebody, I thought somebody said basically help yourself to the goldfish, <laughs> but maybe he was just observing that there were goldfish, and I got the wrong idea because I'm basically Shaggy from Scooby Doo and just think about food all the time. <laughs> you're like, can I eat these, man? <laughs> so I apologize if that was inaccurate. <laughs> So embarrassing. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was crackers. Maybe, maybe I made a mistake. I, I may have made. I mean, it sounds more like I made a mistake, Kevin. <laughs> Just really bad at observations. <laughs> oh man. But there are some interesting details in this scene. He notices uh, a picture on the piano of the man of the house and the man of the house's daughter, who is a young adult. So this tells us that. This sexy young Barbara Stanwyck prancing around in a towel is married to a much older man. And an age gap relationship like that. that you never, that's never going to work out. That's always a bad sign, right? Yeah, it's just an older man uh, being victimized by a woman using her sexual wiles. And, and a blonde lady at that. Yes. And um, he keeps obsessing over her anklet that she's wearing. Um, but yeah, it's real. It's, it's, it's steamy dialogue from the jump. And it's very clever and... You know, they're forming this connection and the chemistry is just fantastic. It's sizzling. And then she starts, though, she starts asking questions about, can I get some accident insurance on my husband? Uh-oh. Is he going to have an accident? What's going to happen? I feel like a lot of guys in, like, bantery scenes in old movies come across as kind of threatening. Like, yeah, if you say the wrong thing, I'll pop you one. You know what I mean? Like, but he doesn't. He seems like a real, like, he seems like a nice guy. He even... Jokes about what if, you know, if she goes too far, he'll just bust out crying. So I liked him. I liked this McMurray character. He's, he seemed like a low-key character. So I like that. So would you have wanted to date him? If he showed up at is your door. Is that a trick question? <laughs> if he showed up, is this the type of guy you'd ask to uh, murder your uh, significant other? Well, you know what? I'm not in the market for that right now, Kevin. <laughs> and as long as you Ooh. behave, <laughs> yeah, let's give I never six will months. be. <laughs> Also, I'm not so bold. I'm not. I'm. I'm way too self-conscious to show up to the door or you know a balcony in my towel. If that happened to me, I would have made some strangled noise and run away and like hid under my bed, and then I would have like avoided going out the rest of the day and just been really upset. So that's a that's a look into my psyche <laughs> that nobody wanted. It'd be a very sad movie. <laughs> and that's the end of the film, folks. Nobody got murdered, so it was a win. <laughs> also, I don't want to murder you. <laughs> I mean, would you want to commit? Would I mean, like, you know, when we met, when we met, when we first met, obviously we had a nice connection, but 
would you have want? Would you have been suckered into you know committing murder for me after like a day? Well, you were pretty compelling. You'd make a pretty good case. Mm-hmm. I could have shanghaied you into some <laughs> half baked murder plot. Yeah, I, I, I got. Mean, you. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm I'm lucky you didn't do that. Yeah. I was putty in your hands at that. You point. really owe me. <laughs> at this point, though, I'm my own man. But back sure. then. In the heat of that early passion. I, yeah, I think you might have. But the, the problem is you had no one you wanted me to kill. I'm just a very loving person. Yeah. But yeah, so we go into, we go back to the office. Oh, no, we have a great line about how he's you know smelling honeysuckle in the air. And how could he know that murder sometimes smells like honeysuckle? It's just so great. Love the film, love the atmosphere. Um, I do wish I worked in a cool office with a balcony where you could go stand on the balcony and look down on all the other working stiffs. So fun. I think you also wish you worked in an office with Edward G. Robinson. Oh, hell yeah. He would be a great like editor type, you know, be like, oh, what's the scoop? <laughs> That's what editors say in real life. They just walk around like that, shaking their fingers saying, what's the scoop? Because <laughs> I'm a real reporter. Um. <laughs> and Edward G. Robinson, it's interesting that uh, Fred McMurray, primarily known as a family-friendly guy, he's kind of playing a little bit against type here. Edward G. Robinson, I think most people think of him as being a criminal. You mm-hmm. know, mother of mercy, is this the end of Rico? That sort of thing. He, he, and, and he's not playing a criminal here. No, he's playing He's playing a very honorable man and, and, a, and a character to boot. When we first meet him, he's given the what for to a kind of sleazy truck driver who filed a false insurance claim. And this is our way of uh, learning that uh, this Edward G. Robinson, who plays a man named Key, he's a pretty sharp customer. Yeah, and he has a very, very strong moral code that makes uh, makes catching people in insurance fraud more than just a job. It's something that he feels compelled to do out of his own sense of ethics. Like why? I mean, would never imagine myself after some of the nightmare stuff I've dealt with medical insurance in my time. I never would imagine myself like really rooting for the guy who's trying to get, <laughs> get people out of the you know uh, you know uh, make sure that people don't get their insurance payouts. But you know, it's it's a very good movie. <laughs> so, do you think like the health insurance people you you dealt with are all basically like Edward G. Robinson? No, they're all like Keys. No. None of them are like keys. They're either just poor working saps. They're just evil, evil, evil uh, overlord people. And keys, when he was talking about this uh, fraudulent truck driver, he condemns him in a very uh, interesting way. He said that this guy is dumb enough to sleep in a bed with four rattlesnakes. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means, but I like it. <laughs> not three. <laughs> Four. <laughs> well, I think anybody can sleep with three. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a reasonable risk. <laughs> and um, it also establishes a, a pretty close bond between McMurray and Robinson. Uh, Keys will say something kind of like pithy or silly, kind of like often dismissing Neff, and Neff will respond with like, I love you too. And, and it feels very natural. It feels like a father-son type of relationship. Yes, it definitely does. They're, these are These guys are... These guys are they, close. They definitely love each other. There's no sexual overtones or anything like that. And it's also not overstated. It's not like they don't do the, like, we're best friends, like, you know, thing. But, like, you can tell that they really care about each other. Right. You know, and, and it's, you know, that's going to be important later. 
<laughs> no spoilers. Uh, no. So then Fred McMurray gets a message that uh, Barbara Stanwyck wants him to come and talk to her. Originally, it was going to be in the evening when her husband was there, but she suggests that he come over in the afternoon when her husband won't be there. He has some important uh, clients scheduled for meetings, but he says he keeps thinking about that anklet. And oops, silly Barbara Stanwyck also forgot that her maid won't be there that day. And he says, oh, if your maid's not here, I wonder if there's something I can do for you. And that thing is murder. <laughs> she just comes out and says it. No, not really. Um, she starts, though, you know, they talk and they sparks are still flying between them. But then she uh, lets slip maybe why she really wants them there. She asks about the... Uh, the accident insurance again, and they get into a more detailed conversation. How, it, do, how does that go, Kevin? Doesn't go well at first. Fred McMurray is very uh, resistant to the idea. He says he doesn't think it'd be a good idea to do a morgue job. He's not anybody's stooge until about five minutes later. <laughs> yeah, he calls her out right away and then just basically storms out and goes back to his place and then stares sadly out a window. But then she knocks on his door again. Sexy saxophone sounds. <laughs> and I wrote down at this point, Kevin, are men really this dumb? <laughs> and I said in all caps, yes. <laughs> it's very sultry mood. I think most men have probably, maybe many women as well, but pretty much all men have probably been in a situation where they've made a questionable decision in order to get laid. Mm -hmm. Moida? Not quite, but we've all done How things we How many bodies do you have in your closet, Kevin? <laughs> but this movie has a very sultry, sexual uh, vibe to it. You can really feel the uh, energy and the desire between McMurray yeah, and it's Yeah, it's, it's everything one of these kind of, you know, sexy noirs should be. You know, it, it's pitch perfect, really. It doesn't overdo it. It doesn't try to lay it on in a way that feels... Uh, fake or over the top or gross. It, it's just very natural. And then when she's there with him, they're alone uh, bantering. She starts dropping little details about how unhappy she is with her husband. How he's not quite a very nice fella. And it's a master class of manipulation, in my opinion, because she doesn't start with the, oh, my husband hits me when he gets drunk. She, she builds up to that and then kind of like, is by building up to it and releasing small details here and there is kind of seeing his willingness to buy it and to potentially act upon it. So, yeah, she's very good at that throughout the film. Very, very well written as somebody who is manipulative and really in control of the situation and working whoever she's talking to. And I appreciate that because, like, sometimes when you're watching these movies, like the femme fatale or one of the other, you know, characters will be doing something manipulative and you're kind of like well why isn't everybody in the room being like oh red flag like what the heck are you doing <laughs> you know where it's just really on the nose but in this one like you could kind of you know you could kind of see it because you know even though it leads this you know law-abiding citizen into a, a life of crime and misery what she's putting out there it, it's kind of like a it's like a frog being boiled slowly maybe you don't notice it at first I think that's a great point. I was really interested in her, and it made me wonder. As, as I said, the people who made the creative decisions for this movie, uh, James M. Cain, Billy Wilder, Raymond Chandler, they're all men. 
I wonder how this movie would have been different if there were female writers offering a female point of view, especially with this character. How do you think that would have been different? Yeah, I think that would have been really interesting because I think Barbara Stanwyck plays a really interesting character. I mean, in this case, I'm pretty sure this lady is a serial killer and she fits the mode of a female serial killer who typically kill people either they're closely working with or caring for, um, as well as people in their own family. Uh, So... um, I, I'd be curious. I mean, w- one thing that struck me was this, uh, this, the book by Kane was written um, based on the Ruth Snyder murder that mm-hmm. you and I have read about um, with uh, Damon Runyon covering right. it. And that's interesting because that was the case of this, you know, um, woman who killed, you know, the father of her child and her husband of many years. You know, after he started hanging up the photo of his long dead fiance, they were in Queens, New York. This was in the 20s. It was a big sensation because, you know, she and her lover, you know, were convicted and she got the electric hair. And, um, you know, I always thought about that case where everyone was really talking about her and like this kind of gross sexist, like, oh, a crazy blonde, you know, murderous, you know, kind of way. And I thought, um, you know, I was always kind of like, oh, it would be interesting, like if somebody had like interviewed her or something, you know, and like gotten her perspective. Not that you should ever kill anyone. I'm not trying to defend that, but it's just, it's interesting. It would have been interesting. And yeah. in, in this case, I think uh, a woman of this era didn't really have a lot of economic opportunities on her own. And her only way to get, to make her way into the world or improve her lot in life was which man she ended up with. Well, you know, in this case, I mean, okay, here's the thing. I think the Barbara Stanwyck character is, is very clearly a predator. She's she's a she's a predator. She's a female predator. She's operating and and hurting people around her and killing people around her, um, in the mode that she knows how to do, which is to manipulate others and to you know do what she can get away with, you know, in a very smart, calculating way. But what I think is interesting is that, you know, if you ha- if you told maybe a female writer at the time, okay, write something based on the Ruth Snyder case, I wonder if something. Mm-hmm. different would have come out of it and if if, it w- if that would have generated a different kind of story you know th- this seems like a very male take on the ruth snyder case i'd be curious you know take that same foundational case write something based on it what happens where a woman who seemingly settled down seemingly has a successful marriage wealthy what makes them snap or you know what makes them do something so heinous and calculated you know yeah, th- this movie seems to be very, very sympathetic towards Fred McMurray. As if mm-hmm. he had no agency, he yeah. just he just slipped up and fell for the wrong dame. Oops, <laughs> I did a murder. You know those dames; they're always getting us to do murders. You know, and I and I, he, he's literally the one that committed the murder. That irked that irked me as a lady because I yeah, it, it's like ugh, you know, oh this poor innocent babe, like you know he's not you know like he's, he viciously killed this fella, and and knew what he was doing. You know, but at the same time, you know, there are female serial killers. And I, I think that the way Barbara Stanwyck behaves, she she's obviously very glamorous and very beautiful. You know, a lot of female serial killers are not, you know, and, and, and I don't think this is necessarily an accurate portrayal of that. But I think, in you know, in terms of the mode of killing that she employs, you know, she might reflect something about how if you were a woman and you wanted to, you know, be be, um, you know, seemingly an acceptable member of society, but also get away with murder at this time. You know, this is the kind of stuff you'd pull, I think. And I guess and if you were a woman in the 40s who wanted to uh, commit murder, pretty much the only weapon you could use is your own sexuality. Well, I mean, or you could just shoot him yourself and pretend it was a, 
yeah. break in or something. But then you wouldn't get the insurance money because they'd be all suspicious. Yeah, she's she's too. Sly she's trying for to that. have it all. She's trying to have it all. That's this. That's the thing. Like she could do something to her if if she was really just concerned about getting out of an unhappy marriage. She could probably do something that would be safer, that would make it look like some some guy broke in and shot at us. But, in, in the scene in the apartment, she even says, you know, he was drunk. He fell asleep in the car with the car running. I was tempted just to close the garage door and let him uh, suffocate. And, of course, Fred McMurray says, oh, they, that wouldn't have worked. That's just a monoxide job. Yeah, and it's like it's showing that she, in this case, she really is after the money here. That's why she got with this guy. That's what she's, she's not leaving without that money. Basically, because if if we're really just I'm this guy's an abusive asshole, I want to get away with him, I want to kill him because he won't divorce me. There would have been ways to potentially do the murder where they wouldn't be setting themselves up for such scrutiny because obviously the insurance does not want to pay out and they're going to investigate. She's interested in him because he's an insurance guy and presumably knows the trick of the trades. Yeah. Or the tricks of the trade. (laughs) Tongue tied. And in fact, he he says, you know, these guys in the insurance uh, trade. When it comes to murder, the insurance guys, they know more tricks than a carload of monkeys. <laughs> I don't think that would be a very pleasant driving experience. Maybe even less so than Barbara Stanwyck's husband later on. <laughs> so the two of them decide to commit murder together. And the first step of the plan is they need they need to uh, sell the husband some accident insurance. But they don't want to let him know. They were selling him accident insurance, but but they want to get his signature on a piece of paper, which they can then say was for accident insurance. And so part of this is they want to have a discussion with him about accident insurance, and they want to have a witness. And the witness is the man's daughter. Lola. Barbara Stanwyck sets it up so she and Lola are playing Chinese checkers in the corner while this is all going down. Like, like casual mom-daughter stuff. <laughs> And uh, the husband, of course, isn't really interested in the accident insurance. He just wants car insurance. Uh, And while he and McMurray are talking, Lola leaves. Uh, Her father says, oh, don't you go running off and spending time with this uh, Italian stereotype. Oh, yeah, it was an Italian stereotype. That was unfortunate. Some guy named Nino, and they're like, he's a bad guy. He's hot-tempered. It's like, oh. Jesus, it's one of those things. But when McMurray gets out to his car... Oh, well, but first he has him sign... He has him sign the papers, which he secretly gets him to sign the accident insurance. He does an old switcheroo. Does the old switcheroo. And so the Rubicon has perhaps been crossed. But then Neff gets carjacked by Lola. Yes, Lola wants Neff to give her a ride because she wants to see her Italian stereotype boyfriend. And it's interesting how much illicit sex and illicit romantic relationships there are in this picture. But it kind of makes sense because, I mean, the dad is the dad is so controlling. We find out later that Lola has problems with Barbara Stanwyck. So, you know, the fact that she's kind of having to sneak around and not be honest with her parents in this case kind of makes sense. It kind of fits the, the characters. It doesn't feel out of nowhere. No, it doesn't. At this point, in order to play it safe, Fred McMurray and uh, Barbara Stanwyck uh, start having their meetings secretly in a grocery store. Yeah. As someone whose day job involves retail, I very much enjoyed all these grocery store conversations. And I imagined us being at Wegmans, (laughs) 
pushing a cart through something and like being having the aisle blocked by two fancy, well dressed people discussing murder most foul <laughs> over some cans <laughs> of beans. <laughs> also, like, I mean, you even like this is a great scene, but you'd hate it if this happened in real life because they'd be blocking the whole aisle. You'd be trying to push your cart through, and then they'd be that like looking looking wistfully at one another, and it just I hate when people do that. They're great scenes. It's, it's fun to see the old products. But basically, there's like one aisle mm-hmm. with some food in the middle of it. And they just kind of walk around in circles around this one you aisle. You know what it reminded me of look-wise? You know that place where we, we we went like one time? It's like a big storefront, all those glass windows. Oh, the Fresh Market? Yes. Yes. <laughs> You've nailed Let's it. Let's go recreate those scenes there. Yeah, we should, but we had to wear sunglasses. Naturally. And, and trench coats. and uh, We already have the trench coats. I have the sunglasses. Let's do it right now. Why haven't we killed anybody yet? I don't know. We'd be terrible at it because we'd think we were really smart. We'd think we were really smart, and then we'd just botch the whole thing. And it would turn out there was CCTV footage everywhere. Because, yeah, we'd be like the, oh, you know, we're going to, oh, wow, we're just, you know. Hannibal Lecter types, we can really figure it out and taunt the cops, and then they would just... We'd be like Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. And leaving some big, huge dipshits. fucking clue right at the uh, scene of the crime. Dipshits. And we'd be dipshits, too. And also, we're, I mean, like, we, we feel guilty over the dumbest stuff, you know? We, we wouldn't... I mean, this... I can't even imagine doing that. And it's like, that's why I'm like, this guy, Fred McMurray, how nice is he if he's capable of something like this? After basically like so, so you're saying just one, because one just, hookup. Just because a guy commits murder, he's not a nice guy. Well, you're like, being a little judgmental. Well, I'm just like, you know, the whole like, oh, I'm such a nice guy act in the beginning. Like, you know, like, I, I, I mean, like, how nice could he be? <laughs> he killed well, the I'm person. just like, you know, they're at, like, that's what, like your whole point about, you know, how they're like, oh, you know, he was just an innocent babe and Barbara Stanwyck was yeah. kind of the, the dominant person. It's like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think most people would go from like, you know, ho oh, hum, I, I sell insurance to like, I'm going to kill your husband for you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of like one afternoon, basically. Now, you say that, and, and yeah, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. You got a little emotional at the final fate of oh, this. Oh, well, yes. we'll, we'll get So, so I, I think you had some, must have had some positive feelings of seeing something good in the fella. Yes. You like those bad boys. I like the bad boys. And, and a, after the grocery store scene, uh, Fred McMurray goes, Back to his office and keys Edward G. Robinson. The opposite of a bad boy. Tries to get him to uh, become, move from being a salesman to being a claims man. And of course, he, he, I mean, his pitch basically made me want to become a claims man. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go into insurance just to investigate stuff. He made this whole great speech. A claims man is like a surgeon. He uses his brain. And it really makes clear that uh, he kind of sees his work as that of an artist. You know, he's really doing great things. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, this character. I don't want to. I don't want to undersell him. He's delightful. <laughs> he made this movie for me. I really like that. There's somebody in the film that we can kind of look to and kind of, you know, ser- serves as. You know, he's not a perfect person. You can tell based on some some detail he reveals in in this speech but he really um has a moral code and kind of grounds the film in a way that i really liked is this character that you love so much the character who made the film for you 
the character you frankly adore character uh i don't think it'd be too much to say you worship this character that he's your uh dream man uh does he remind you of anyone yeah he's i wrote down in big all caps kevin you are keys (laughs) because he's very formal concerned with integrity deeply suspicious big-hearted with an encyclopedic knowledge of what he's talking about that's me to a t that's you to a t i'm always talking about insurance and you you also are the type where you'd be all like you know anya i'm gonna crack the case and then you'd be (laughs) it would be right in front of you (laughs) and you'd have you know maybe it would take you a little longer to get there as a result that's literally you (laughs) they they this movie, You're a lucky woman. This movie read you for filth. But also, tell tell them about how well, Keys... There, there was, there was yeah. one thing about Keys that's certainly very different f- from me, luckily for you. Yeah. Is that Keys, uh, during this speech, he tells the story about the time he nearly got married. He was having a love affair with someone. And near the time of the wedding, Keys got curious and started investigating her. And did not like what he found. And so his love affair was destroyed because of this, because of his curiosity. And I thought this was interesting because we've already established that uh, Keys and Neff love each other. And I think it's a bit of foreshadowing that Keys' curiosity about things is going to lead to him wrecking his love affair, so to speak, with Neff, Fred McMurray. And I think it's kind of, I mean... It's it's yet another sort of noir take on the trope of like you never really know anybody else, and if you try to get to know anybody else or fall in love, it's going to destroy you and everything you love. So, you know, don't fall in love. But basically, noir in gen- no- film noir in general kind of seems to, for the most part, have a pretty negative view on humanity. Humanity, but also you know lo- heterosexual romantic relationships. It's or any romantic relationship. Yeah, I guess so. It's basically like a an old crone holding a cigarette being like, don't fall in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically noir in a nutshell. <laughs> Doesn't want anybody to have a relationship in this film. All these relationships are messed up except for Neff and uh, uh, Keyes' very pure bromance. So what do you think that says about the culture that produced that type of film? I mean... I, I, I gotta imagine at least part of it is misogyny, right? You can't trust these skirts. Not only are they not trustworthy, they're like sirens leading you to your doom. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that. If it was just Keys and Neff, everything would have been fine. This is a very sophisticated, well-written version of that trope, so I don't really mind because it's nuanced and it's interesting. But at its heart, I feel like a lot of film noir is basically like, Get those dames out of here. They're nothing but trouble. You know, I think there wasn't really, I think when you, when you don't, when you're maybe scared of women or you don't, you know, you don't get them, they're, they're kind of, they're doing their own thing and you can't control them and it freaks you out and maybe they're kind of too sexy, then, you know, you end up kind of getting stuff like this. You know, not to say that all film noir is like that, not to say that, but, you know, enough of it is that I think it kind of speaks to this culture of, not really understanding women. We don't really want to get their perspective. We're just going to kind of sit over here cowering in fear at their sexy danger. Is that something that wrecks a lot of these films for you? No. I mean, not really. Some of them. I mean, because here's the thing. I, I like good writing. 
I like good storytelling. And this story, it, it feels authentic. It feels like it's speaking to someone. So I can really enjoy that, even though I'm picking up on, you know, some themes of, you know, some maybe low-grade kind of Barbara Stanwyck's too sexy to live, like, ah. Um, but for ones that are really clunky and just kind of maybe feel more mean-spirited, yeah, it's maybe gets gets a little in the way of my enjoyment. How about yourself? It can get in the way sometimes. I remember uh, when I was very young, uh, 10 or 11, that young, uh, I had a lot of very sexist attitudes and someone... <laughs> You're canceled. <laughs> someone told me, someone said to me, if you really want to understand how sexist your attitudes are, take some of the things you're saying or thinking about women and imagine you're saying them about a person of color. And that, and if those things then seem very racist, that's an indication of how sexist you are. And so I think in a movie like this, which has a lot of fear and mistrust of women, if this movie had a lot of fear and mistrust of people of color, that would be very, very racist and people would want no part of it. Yeah, it's hella racist. So then why should we have any part of it when it's about women? It's so good though. I don't know. I I think I think that's a very good uh gauge for what you're consuming. I think as long as you're an informed viewer and you kind of are aware of that, and you're probably aware that you shouldn't base your your life opinions and your worldview off a noir film, you know, written by a bunch of dudes a billion years ago. You know, I, I think you're going to be okay. But, you know, I mean, media does shape people's opinions, and media does shape uh, people's lives in a pretty key way. So maybe if there was a little bit more uh, media literacy out there, that could help. But, you know, it's definitely a tough question. I mean, because... Maybe some of your opinions, Kevin, were were uh, shaped on, on on skirts back in the day. Were shaped by this very genre. Is that fair to say? I think some of my opinions about skirts were probably shaped by Superman comic books. What What about Mickey Spillane? Maybe Mickey Spillane. <laughs> <laughs> Anya has some inside knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, yeah. I mean, so it it can can have an impact. Just don't let your kids watch this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it just seems like it's something you should be informed about. I would not say that this is the worst example I've ever seen. You know, I mean, it's 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 subtle. This is a subtle film. But at the same time, anytime you're kind of having like this monstrous, all-powerful lady, um, and it's written by men for men, basically, you know, you're definitely going to run into some of that misogynistic bullshit. Yeah, and... It- is the fact that Keyes basically renounced romance and he's the the moral center of the movie, Mm -hmm. is that some sort of subtle anti-woman, anti-romance message? Kind of, yeah. He's too pure for those ladies. He sees through them. He knows what they're up to, and it's murder. (laughs) Murder most foul. I think if you watched movies, especially from this era, you'd be like, and, and you were like an alien, you'd probably be like, okay, um, if I had to guess... Most crimes are committed by women against men, you know, that lead to, like, violence or death. You you would not necessarily think the opposite, you know, because the women in this are kind of, like, calling the shots. And they're doing underhanded, nefarious things, and they're leading men to their doom. So, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely a warped view of reality. Yeah. 
And I guess it's also perhaps somewhat sexist that the woman wants to kill the person. She's just not smart enough to figure it out. She needs Fred McMurray to come up with a, a plan. And he does come up with a plan, well, doesn't he? I mean, I'll just say, though, the best leaders delegate. Ah, good there, point. There you go. Um, but, yeah, they do come up with this this whole plan. And basically they're going to rely on McMurray's, uh, you know, pretty pretty robust insurance knowledge in order to make this work. So the ploy is as such, and correct me if I missed anything, because we already established that I'm not great with <laughs> details or paying attention or listening. Um, but basically uh, they're going to get, uh, so uh, Stanwick's husband is going to have to go out of town on a train. and That's an important that's, detail. Yes. The train is key because a train accident will net Barbara Stanwyck the double indemnity uh, that she she is uh, owed by this insurance policy, meaning that she won't just get the insurance payout, she'll get double. She'll get, you know, that times two. Um, so she hastily calls uh, McMurray to let him know, hey, he's going to go on the train tonight. Let's get it in motion. Mcmurray hides in, in the back of the car. Um, Barbara Stanwyck... But first, though, McMurray uh-huh. does a... Re- comically elaborate setup at his apartment involving putting note cards in bells and stuff. Somehow. Are you telling me that if you were going to do a murder, you wouldn't be like all paranoid like that? Cause I would. There's like uh, his, his phone has a bell and his door buzzer has a bell. So he's putting cards in between the bell and the ringer so that if someone calls him or someone rings the bell, the card will fall and he comes back to know somebody was there. And he even makes sure that uh, the mechanic at his garage sees him. So he has kind of a sort of a pseudo alibi. He calls one of his office mates to bother him with a question about the job. Yeah. I'd be doing all that stuff. You thought about this uh, pretty carefully. Well, I was just just taking notes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) What is it wrong to be be, uh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Call the police, Kevin's thinking. Um, but I, you were talking about he's hiding in the back of the car. Okay, so he's hiding in the back of the car. He's waiting to pounce. Barbara Stanwyck gets in the driver's seat, and then uh, her uh, unwitting hubby gets in the passenger seat, and he's harumphing and complaining like the boring old man he is. And she has agreed with McMurray to uh, honk the uh, horn three times once it's time to kill. And they go, you know, she's driving him to where he needs to go, but then at the last second, she pulls off onto a uh, dark country lane. And, of course, the hubby's like, what are you doing? This isn't the right street. Blah, 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 blah. And then um, it's a really effective shot what happens next. You want to talk about that? We then have a close-up on the face of Barbara Stanwyck as her she's in the driver's seat of the car. We zoom in on her as her husband in the passenger seat is brutally killed by Fred McMurray. We don't see this brutal death. We just see Barbara Stanwyck's reaction, or rather her lack of reaction to it. So good. So chilling. And then they go to the train station and pull into a line of uh, parked cars. And I kind of liked that shot. It reminded me of an earlier shot in the movie where we see big rows of people at the insurance office busily working. It felt like this shows how people come together in a society and everything fits together 
And that made me think of the early shot in the movie where Fred McMurray is going into an empty office building. It's like all these things suggest that what he's done make him no longer fit into society as a whole. If you kill someone, you're out of the club. Well, you said if somebody kills someone, that means he's not a nice fella anymore. Yeah. He's gone a little too far. Harsh words from me. <laughs> I've never seen you talk like this, I folks. <laughs> Basically, I really like this scene, too, because, you know, now now McMurray, now the phase two, now that the husband is dead, phase two begins. So McMurray grabs this guy's crutches because he, he had broken his leg. And he wants to, uh, they're going to try to make it so that they can get this double indemnity um, going for them. So, um, what the, you know, for the audience's sake, they go over the plan once more as uh, they are walking together to put McMurray on the train so he can pose as the husband and accrue some witness sightings so people think that this guy was on the train when, in fact, he is already dead. And um, it's great because it's just McMurray, like, repeating everything because he's so nervous and Barbara Stanwyck's like, we already talked about this. Stop it. So I thought that was just a clever way of introducing exposition in a way that doesn't feel like it's slowing things down. And it feels like in character because presumably if you just, you know, snap someone's neck in a car, you'd be pretty freaked out. <laughs> Basically, the plan is going to be, and we can talk about some wrinkles to this plan in a minute, but this plan is going to be that um, McMurray is going to go on the train dressed in a very similar manner to the husband. He's going to go to the back of the train after making sure people kind of saw him, but maybe didn't really see his face. And then he's going to jump out and rush over to uh, where Barbara Stanwyck is waiting with her car. And they're going to together drag the husband's body out into the track. And eventually he's going to be discovered and people are going to assume that he fell from the train accidentally and died. And then that she's going to be able to collect the insurance payout and they can be together. Then when he gets out on the observation deck, uh, he finds that somebody is out there. And this kind of messes up the plan. And the person that's out there, of course, is veteran character actor Porter Hall. Oh, he's appearing where you're not expecting him. <laughs> <laughs> Love this guy. <laughs> I didn't even know who he was until the second scene he's in. Uh, we knew him and loved him in The Thin Man. He played Macaulay. We mm -hmm. knew him and didn't quite love him or tolerate him. <laughs> Satan met a lady where he played Ames. He's Ames, folks. He's Ames. He came back to us. <laughs> he can't leave us alone. <laughs> we love this guy. He's always playing like kind of like a kind of a doofy villain or like a uh, you know kind of like a bumbling guy. Someone someone who keeps talking about his you know birds or something when he, it's very clear no one else is interested. He pops up in several films uh, directed by Billy Wilder and also several films directed by uh, Preston Sturgis, always in bit roles, but uh, we love him. He makes a big impact. Love him. He was by far the best part of Satan Meta Lady. By far. I was rooting for his character. Wouldn't it have been better if that other jerk had been killed and it had been Ames investigating? Yes. Yeah, it would have been way better. Because you would have been expecting him to be Shane, but then you're like, no, let's get this, you know, kind of bumbling guy in. There would have been a lot more naps. And it would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> if that movie would have been a lot better if more people had napped. And people had just had given nap breaks to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just sleep. Sleep, my children. Just sleep. It'll be over soon. We should be script doctors. <laughs> we really should. It's a pretty good plan. Until this character actor this spoils character actor, it all. This character actor, Porter Hall. It would, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for this meddling character actor. 
the character actor Porter Hollister say, "Oh, you know, I once broke a bone once," and it's like, "Get out of here! Go get me some cigarettes." Mm-hmm. And so he says, "Okay, I'll go get you some cigarettes, uh, Fred McMurray." And so he leaves to go fetch the cigarettes. Fred McMurray promptly throws himself off the train. I felt like doing that on any train ride I've been on. But I, I, my reaction during the COVID times to this scene was, I miss going on Amtrak's. I'm, I'm a kind of a weirdo because anytime I go on an Amtrak, because I watch a lot of old movies, for some reason in my head, I'm thinking like, it's going to be a little fancy. <laughs> and it's not. Has it ever been fancy? One time, me and my friends in college sprang for like, first class on an Amtrak or like not first class, but like whatever is in between normal and, and first class. And it was just like, we got slightly more leg room. And for some reason, my dumbass was like, I'm like, where's the chandeliers? Where's the Oriental rugs on the floor? Like <laughs> I'm thinking like, it's going to be, I, I know that's not logical, but that's just what my mind pictures when I picture train rides. Poor Anya. I have a lot of issues. <laughs> I've been ruined by these old-timey trains. But anyway, it's really, it's a pretty suspenseful scene as he's trying to shake this uh, potential witness. He jumps off the train. Robert Stanwyck is there waiting for him. Did you say Robert Stanwyck? (laughs) (laughs) Barbara Stanwyck. Barbara Stanwyck is there waiting for him. They drag her husband's corpse onto the tracks. With nary a care about fingerprints. And then they get into the car and it doesn't start. And like these people are bad. They murdered a man horribly. And, and, and you said you said in your mind, if you murder someone, you're bad. Yeah. You yeah. said that flat baseline. <laughs> I hate to come down so hard on anything, but I think that's a pretty good place to stand. But you know, but like it's so well written. You're like ah, like you know what I mean. Like you're like you're, you're into it, and you're kind of like the suspense is really good. Sometimes if I, a character is just really bad. Or, you know, or evil, even if it's a compelling movie, I have a hard time getting into it because I'm like, oh, I hope they get caught. But in this one, you're like, you're like, oh, my God. So what was it about these characters that made you feel emotionally engaged with them? <sighs> like you've seen them kind of fall in love, I guess. And like maybe you you kind of fall into the siren spell of like that this is a good idea and that they should be together and they should be together without, you know, any, you know, any worry to what consequences will come about if they do this. Maybe I'm just very easily manipulated and gullible like Mr. McMurray, but I, I, I thought I thought it did a good job sort of sucking you into their story, even if you know it's morally wrong and you condemn them for that. Uh, and I think Fred McMurray has kind of an inherent likability to him. I think that's why he was cast in My Three Sons and uh, the Disney movies. And also, he was the model for uh, the original Captain Marvel. I mean, he wasn't hired to be the model, but they just kind of used uh, the image of Fred McMurray as their uh, vision of uh, what Captain Marvel should look like. Yeah, he, he has a, a quiet charm to him. And he, and he's not threatening. You don't feel like he's a creep or overly confident or arrogant. He's just, like, very likable. So then the car starts, and Barbara Stanwyck drops him off about uh, a block from his apartment. And shortly thereafter, he goes for a walk. And as he's walking, he starts thinking about all the things that could go wrong and happen and the trouble he could be in. Also, and isn't that relatable? Don't we all do that, relatable. folks? I do that every night. I do that every night. I do that, like, if I, like, do, like, a slight... I do that if I, like, you know, glare at someone who shoved me in the subway. You know, like, and then I'll be like, oh, man, that guy might have had just a bad day. Like, <laughs> so... 
So, I mean, the things, he, the, the sort of stages of processing what he's doing that he's going through are relatable. And he says this, this walk he was on was the walk of a dead man. Uh, Kevin, I want to ask your opinion on something. Now that the murder has been committed, you being an officer of the court. Yes, I'm. <laughs> being an officer of the court, how would you rate this murder? I mean, would it be, do you think this a prosecution would make quick work of this? Or do you think this was pretty well planned out? Because as a layperson, as, as a simple newspaper woman, I was, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty, I thought that was pretty clever, especially before CCTV footage. If maybe if they'd worn gloves dragging the body around, I would have been like A plus without the fingerprints, maybe more like a B plus A minus. But I, I thought, I thought it was clever. It was pretty well planned out. That's my answer. <laughs> wow. Really glad we got that in-depth insight. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> it, it was very well planned out. I don't think most murders are planned with that kind of cold uh, precision. But more should be. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it, it was basically like a murder from the Columbo show where it's ridiculously elaborate and you know something is going to go wrong. Why do you think more pe- I mean never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to hear that question. Why do you think more people don't don't do that like Columbo-esque shenanigans or or do people do that and it always goes wrong? Or maybe they do it and it works and we never hear about it. Oh. Damn, that's chilling. There you go. Maybe a lot of um, deaths that you hear about that are uh, recorded as accidents or simple plane crashes or car crashes. Maybe they're actually the perfect murder. How many innocent souls has Columbo claimed? (laughs) (laughs) That's the question we should all be asking ourselves. But anyways, now it comes time to to, uh, pay the piper. Or as, you know, for the insurance guys at least, the piperess. (laughs) Oh, don't roll your eyes. <laughs> He's leaving. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so there's a meeting of uh, some insurance men. Keys' boss is there. Keys is there. Neff is there. And then Barbara Stanwyck walks in. What happens next? Well, I first want to note, I just adored how Keys was just so disrespectful to his employer in this whole scene. He kept on being like, you don't know insurance, and like, don't tell me what to wear. I mean, like, what? <laughs> what kind of weird office dynamic is this? I love that. <laughs> Were people in the 40s just much more rude to their bosses and giving them the what for because they had more, like, worker protections or something? I don't know, but I like the energy. Basically, what is happening is that uh, Keyes' boss and Neff's boss is, uh, you know, skeptical about this, that this guy takes out a double indemnity on a train accident and then like a few weeks later happens to die on the train. What are the odds? So he's calling in Miss Barbara Stanwyck to talk about the policy and kind of be like, uh, you know, what exactly is happening here? Was your husband depressed? Did he do this on purpose? Maybe commit suicide, you know, in order to get the payout and make sure that you were cared for. And she's masterful in this scene, in my opinion. She's just like, she doesn't even, she doesn't bat an eye. You know, as far as her story goes, she didn't know about the money. They're just springing that on her. And she's reacting with just the right amount of outrage where she's saying, you're telling me I 
I got a payout that I didn't know about. Now you're telling me I can't have it and you're going to fight me over court. This is not the time. I'm a mourning widow and I just do not want to deal with you right now. And then she bounces. And she's not, she's not, she's not batting an eye. She's not saying, oh, I want the money. She's just like, I need to go bury my dead, basically. So I thought that was well done. She bounces. Mm -hmm. She's out of there. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Key says to his boss, he says, oh, yeah, no, I thought about I thought that it might be a suicide, too, but only for a minute. And then he starts rattling off all these statistics on suicide that makes that to his boss look like a fool. And then he, he leaves saying, well, next time I'm, uh, I'll rent a tuxedo. Because his boss complained about him being in shirt sleeves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's like basically Mc, McMurray is overjoyed. Because the smartest guy in the business, Keys, is on his side, basically. He's saying, no, nah, it was an accident. It was not a suicide. Nobody kills themselves by throwing themselves off a train in this manner. A train that's moving 15 miles yeah, per hour. Yeah, it must have been an accident. He must have slipped or, you know, fell down and just happened to, you know, fall in a way that broke his neck. So he's filling in the clear at this point. And he goes home after work. He gets a call from Barbara Stanwyck. She's like a block away. Things are looking up. He says, hey, hey, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, why don't you come on over? And then a second later, the bell rings, and he opens up the door, and it's keys. Oh, hitting my mic because I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Doing fake trumpets and breaking all the equipment. I wrote down, this movie really knows how to freak you out on behalf of some murderers, basically. Because, like, the suspense is crazy. And you know Barbara Stanwyck's coming. What, what, how's, how's Key's going to react when he sees her knocking on the door coming in? He's going to figure it all out, Kevin. What's going to happen? The jig will be up. The jig will be up. But Barbara Stanwyck hears Key's voice. As he's leaving and he keys opens the door. And so Barbara Stanwyck stands on the other side of the door. So keys can't see her and she holds the door open to hide herself. And so then we have a shot that shows her behind the door keys on the other side of the door, talking to Fred McMurray, revealing his suspicions that this was actually murder. Take a breather a lot it's it's a great it's a great scene I, I i have a theory about why i got so invested i mean am i the only one you got invested too it's yes. a suspenseful scene i got very invested so my thinking is storytelling like this it doesn't require a character to be likable maybe it's helpful if some elements about them are, or their goal are relatable that you can relate to but that's not even necessarily super requ- required i just think people like to watch people solve problems and if you throw a lot of problems at a person and you're seeing them kind of you know trying to navigate through it get through the maze get through the quest i think people identify with that and they want to see more and they want to see how they're going to keep this this going this kind of in this case it's this crazy shambles attempt to cover up a murder and get insurance money you know but we're seeing him deal with all these obstacles and just when you think he's they're safe ah oh, no they pull out the rug from under them and it kind of and it keeps you motivated to kind of keep watching and see what's going to happen you're getting nervous and suspenseful because you've identified with them solving this problem even though in real life you'd be like oh my god they should go to jail i like that theory i like that theory a lot uh another thing that occurred to me is do you think we like neff a little bit and see something good in him because keys 
likes Neff and Key sees something good in him. Yeah, I think that that really helped. I think it would have been. I think if nobody good had liked Neff, it would be easy to kind of dismiss him as like a big dumbass at best, and in it kind of a just pretty much as bad as Stanwick at the worst. And, and in fairness, I mean that's kind of what he is. He's the one who literally kills the husband. Had he at any point said, "Listen, not only not only am I not interested, but I'm going to tell your husband." You pulled this crap, and so he can get away from you, so you don't kill him in some other way. Nothing would have happened, but by having you know somebody we admire and who is a is a morally upright person, kind of you know, give him a pat on the head. Basically, at the beginning of the film, we kind of are like, okay, he's obviously not overtly heinous, because otherwise, this uh, this keys fellow wouldn't have wanted anything to do with him. So I think the next day, Naf goes to the office and. The daughter of the murdered man is there to see him. And she has some stunning revelations. Oh, yes. Well, it turns out that her dad was not necessarily the first member of her family that Barbara Stanwyck did away with. What? Yes. Fill me in. Well, Miss Stanwyck had let Neff know that she had worked as a nurse for the family taking care of her husband's uh, previous wife before her untimely death. Ominous, to say the least. But now Lola's going to let us know a bit more information about that whole debacle. Um, Give us the deets. She tells uh, Neff that she basically went up to a cabin with the nurse and her mother, and then one chilly evening found her mother lying in bed with a, a ammonia and... and uh, feverish and ranting and all the windows open and all the blankets thrown on the ground and when she looked up to find the nurse she saw her standing in the doorway with a murderous glint in her eye so not exactly enough to you know book someone on murder charges with but certainly enough to form a suspicion in a young girl's mind she basically says i kind of pushed it away because dad fell in love with her and blah 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 so i tried to get along but at this point both of my parents are dead I think something I think something's up at this point. This Barbara Stanwyck is up to no good. And Neff's of course trying to gaslight her and be like, Oh what? Don't tell anyone because that's stupid. And he figures his best move is to romance Lola. And yes. he starts hanging out with her a lot. He's trying to shut her up by love bombing her. And when you think about it, like that's a really heinous, manipulative thing to do. And like he constantly talks about how he it makes him sad to do it, but like he's a he's a He's a bad fella, Kevin, I think. <laughs> You're going out on a limb. You know, and that's where it would be interesting to see if this were written from a women, woman's perspective. Would the Barbara Stanwyck character be more relatable and more like, okay, I know what he's getting into. And would the insurance salesman guy be the more sinister character? Because he's really good at this, this manipulation and lying and murdering. And it's like, well. I could see a version of the story where he seduces Barbara Stanwyck and convinces her to that she's unhappy and the way to get out of the unhappy marriage is to let him c- commit this murder yeah. and they'll be rich. But I, I think this, this this business with him uh, dating and romancing Lola is almost meant to be like a positive thing. Like it kind of redeems him because now he's with a good woman. Yeah, a good woman will do that to you, Kevin. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Why I oughta. <laughs> so mean. But yeah, I, I was thinking that it's kind of like the the dual roles of women in some of these films where like they're either 
femme fatales like Barbara Stanwyck or they're like angels who are going to redeem a man and, you know, make him good in some way like Lola. Yeah. The virgin and the whore. Exactly. There you go. The dichotomy. But then we meet an old friend from the past. Who could it be, Kevin? Oh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it's Porter Hall. <laughs> you know it is. He's back and ready to stay. He's back all the way from Oregon, where his character is allegedly from. And he's in Neff's office itself. Because Keyes has called him there to get a firsthand report of... Did he really see Barbara Stanwyck's husband or did he see somebody else? I was wondering, at this point, do we think that Keyes has suspicions about Neff and arrange this so that Neff and this eyewitness could be put together to see what happens? Based on what he said later, that I don't think so, but I guess if you want to... I mean, because here's the thing. During this conversation... Uh, Hall approaches McMurray and basically says, do I know you? Like, you look really familiar. Like, do you ever hang out in Oregon? And McMurray's like, nope, 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 go away. You know, acting very suspicious. Not like having a conversation. Like, if somebody came up to you and said that and you were like, couldn't escape them and it was a you know, non-threatening situation, you'd probably be like, oh, no, like, tell me more. Like, maybe I have some weird relatives somewhere. But, like, he just was acting very shady during that whole thing. But then right after, when after the sad moment where Porter Hall leaves the picture. Aw, we miss him already. I do. Can't wait to see him again. Which we will. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's always watching us. Keyes goes over to Naff, and Keyes launches into this speech about how, well, it's obvious that the murderer is Barbara Stanwyck, and she probably had an accomplice. He says, oh, they probably think they're safe, but the two of them aren't safe. They're on a like a train together that uh, they can't get off. They're stuck together, and the last stop is the cemetery. So why is he saying all this stuff unless he's trying to get to Neff? I mean, we kind of talk to each other that way sometimes. <laughs> it's pretty normal. Yeah, I mean, like I guess one read of this is that Keys is psychologically torturing the man he thinks might be culpable of this crime, you know, and as opposed to. And he doesn't let his love blind him. He, in fact, launches in on this guy from the jump. And that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, I like to think that he is a very smart man, but he doesn't quite see what's in front of him. But he's he's compelled to talk about it because he's always talking with Neff about this kind of stuff. And he's always sharing his theory, talking about the little man inside him who won't let him rest until he, you know, catches the crooks, basically. So, you know, it, 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 but I like your read too. Cause that's kind of, that kind of adds maybe a little bit more of a kind of a scary element to the character. He'll nope. do anything to get his man, even if it's somebody he loves. Yeah. And Neff, meanwhile, uh, seems to be falling for Lola. And he's also freaking out about this whole murder business he got wrapped up in. And then he starts freaking out even more when he hears that, uh, Lola's former boyfriend, the stereotypical Italian, Nino, it seems to be hanging out with Barbara Stanwyck. Also, that character who we met a while ago, the Italian stereotype boyfriend, just seemed like a total psycho. Like, you know, so nobody's perfect. Well, that that might be important later. So he he uh they, he has some reason to call up Barbara Stanwyck. 
he said because he wants to arrange uh, a meeting with Barbara Stanwyck because he feels that uh, it occurs to him that maybe all of his problems would be over if Barbara Stanwyck was over and maybe if Barbara Stanwyck and the Italian stereotype were over together, so to speak. In other words, if he killed them both. (laughs) (laughs) Speak English. (laughs) And, uh, And he signs off his phone call with her with an ominous goodbye, baby. You ever say that to me on the phone? I'm getting out of Dodge. You always make with the gun smoke references. <laughs> Jesus. Then <laughs> he goes over to Barbara Stanwyck's place, and what happens? Oh, so tense. It's a, it's a tense and dimly lit, witty, <laughs> dark repartee at first. I'm, I'm doing jazz hands right now for some reason. So they're kind of basically doing that kind of noir talk where they're both like kind of saying... You know, I loved you, but I think I might have to kill you, like a, in, in more subtle ways than that, basically. It's so like a night at our place. Yeah, <laughs> it's what we sit around doing. <laughs> you know, you're not really sure who has the, who's going to have the guts to do it at a certain point. Who does have the guts to do it? Well, at first you think it's Barbara Stanwyck because she plugs him in the shoulder. He kind of staggers over and is like, aren't you going to do it again? I'll make it easy for you. I'll come over there. Very, very nice guy. Very respectable guy helping a woman kill him like that. But then um, she doesn't fire the second shot. He says it's because you've always loved me. And she says, no, I never loved you, at least not until a moment ago. I just used you and exploited you. But now, like a minute ago, I couldn't do it. And so then he embraces her and kisses her and then plugs her twice. She dies. It's a very, it left me wondering. So like, is it possible to realize that you love somebody in like a moment like that? She's, she's like this master manipulator. She's playing everyone pitch perfectly throughout the film, basically, except for keys. Keys is onto her, but he's kind of sworn off women and he's just a pure machine when it comes to this stuff. But everybody who kind of is not buys into her thing And, and she has the upper hand over him at this point. So what, what made her let her guard down, Kevin? What do you think? Is it some sort of creative decision simply to allow each of the protagonists to have a moment of grace shortly before they die because do you not believe that a, do, you, do you not believe that a woman like Barbara Stanwyck in this movie could have done could have held back and not shot him a second time that character I, I she shoots him once why can't she shoot him again my only theory with that is that she realizes at this point She's not getting that money. There's been a shooting at the house. Like, they're done. So, suicide by Neff. Yeah. It's interesting. She, I, she she shot him almost to get him to shoot her. That's an interesting read. I like that. Yeah. Maybe that applies also to what uh, McMurray does next. He leaves the house, and as he leaves, he sees the Italian stereotype come to the door. And his original plan had been to kill them both and kind of make it look like a murder-suicide situation, and then he'd be free. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells the Italian stereotype, go get back with Lola. She loves you. She wants to hear from you. And so he sends him on his way. Which is, I mean, maybe would would have been nice had, had Nino, the Italian stereotype boyfriend, been not portrayed as he was. But basically, at some point, Barbara Stanwyck's character makes a point where she's like, oh, you know, like I've been telling him lies about, you know, Lola. And, like, frankly, the next time he sees her, he'll probably try to kill her. And you're like, um, you know, Neff, I don't think you're doing a 
something as nice as you think you are here. But we're supposed to think it's a nice thing. But we're supposed to think it's a nice thing. Because obviously, you know, women need guys and... So to your way of thinking, is Neff committing uh, suicide at that point because he realizes... He can't get out of this. Yeah. So there's no point in killing this guy. Or, or, you know, or maybe. Or is it because he loves Lola and wants her to be with the fella that Lola loves? I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I think, like, there's an element, too, of, like, yeah, he's not going to be able to get out of this one. And and maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he loved Barbara Stanwyck. Maybe that was the highest he could ever get. And now it's gone. So what's the point of living anymore? So at this point, he staggers back to his office, which is where the movie started, to give his confession. And we cut to him giving the tail end of his confession, and then we zoom back, and Keyes is there listening. (sighs) McMurray asks Keyes for his big speech. What does he say, Kevin? He says, Walter, you're washed up. (sighs) Devastating. And then basically... Keys says, okay, we're going to call the police and call an ambulance for you since you're injured. McMurray's kind of like, I don't want to be patched up just so I can, like, go to the gas chamber for murder. So, like, please, you know, at least give me a a, a bit to get to the Mexican border. And Keys is like, you're not going to get to the elevator, basically. Like, you're badly injured. But he doesn't stop Fred McMurray. And no. Neff uh, staggers out and he collapses. And Keyes goes and sits down beside him. And uh, Neff says something like, oh, you missed the real culprit because he was sitting as close as the desk next to you. And Keyes says, closer than that, Walter. <laughs> and and then Walter says, I love you too. At that point, I started crying. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful. I never thought like a noir film would make me like tear up like that. It was really effective. It was really good. And your final note. Well, it's a stupid pun, so I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this movie really meant a lot to me and was very moving. (laughs) Let's end with a dumb pun. (laughs) It's our trademark. We always end with a cane pun. Well, before I end with a cane pun, what's the Greenlee send-off? What do you think of this film? I think it's a great movie, almost flawless. Yeah, I think it's it's practically flawless. It's really good. This might be one of my favorite movies now. I mean, I'm a little hyped because I just saw it, but, you know. It was a great film. Does it hold up from what you remembered? Yes. Because you saw it before. I've seen it before. It, it holds up. Uh, there's not a wasted frame, as we said. I love uh, Billy Wilder's sensibility, his cynicism, his romanticism. I think you see b- both of those in this movie. How he has a very cynical view of human nature, but he's also capable of a romantic view of human nature when you look at a character like Keyes. Yes. So I, I love in Wilder's film the the, the heart and uh, also the bitterness. Oh, it's it's such a bittersweet ending because you really you really you feel that love, you know, and it's uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You feel that love between Neff and Keyes coming out, and that's like you know. It's a it's a love story. It's it's yeah. it's it's a very it's like an end to a love story. It's very sad, but um, <laughs> <laughs> say it. Oh, say it. Up. Screw you. Um, you know, much like the titular double indemnity in the insurance policy, 
this movie really pays off. <laughs> thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening.